welcome to this episode of Holiness Talks. In this episode, we'll be talking about holiness and the parousia, or holiness and the second coming of Christ. Now, just a few points before we deal with the subject. If we are going to assume that one of the signs that a biblical doctrine or teaching is important lies or consists in the amount of space given to it in the Bible, without any doubt then, it is pretty clear that Jesus' return to earth is one of the most important teachings to be found in the New Testament. As evident in the New Testament, Christ's second coming or return is frequently spoken about, it's clearly taught, and at the same time consistently applied from the teaching of Christ himself right through to the last writing of the New Testament period, that is the apocalypse. Yes, we understand as we look at the subject that there are different interpretations of verses and passages that relate to the parousia. And of course that Christians differ over questions of the timing of the parousia or even the nature. But that's not our concern as we discuss about holiness and Christ's return. Because one thing is sure, regardless of the different interpretations, the fact of Christ's return and the purpose of his return are indisputable and are therefore should not be neglected. So what we're going to do in this episode is to look at some of the terminologies and some of the passages. But the reason we're doing that is to stress the importance of preparation for the coming of Christ. And of course, that leads us to the subject of holiness. When one looks at the New Testament, you have various terminologies. I mean, you find some terms apart from parousia. There's so many terms that are associated with the return of Christ. And we understand that the chief of these ones is parousia. When we look at Romans chapter 13, verse 12, we see the phrase, the day of the Lord. Paul says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Of course, when we look at the Synoptic Gospels, in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, says, what I tell you, that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Then in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
You look at verse 11, the second part, and verse 12, it says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. When one looks at these references to the day of Christ, it is evident that a number of specific and related expressions that are used. For instance, we'll find the phrase that day or the day of wrath, the day of judgment, or sometimes the day of the Lord. It's called the last day, the day of the Son of Man, the day of Christ. It's called the day, the great day of God. So you find a lot about the parousia. The day is one of both punishment and vindication, a day of final death and resurrection. So it can be characterized as a day of both fear and joy. And we find these, we'll come to this conclusion as we see the events associated with it in the various verses that we've read or other verses that are in the New Testament. Again, let's go back to Romans chapter 13, verse 12. It says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. So you bear this, we bear this in mind that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, is a day that is significant, and is a day that demands some spirituality and morality. It's a day that is going to be a day of examination. You see, the impact will depend on our attitudes and behavior to one another. The impact of knowing these days, what this day means, will show in the way we live our lives. And then there's a little word in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, which is an Aramaic expression and found only once in the New Testament. We see that at the end of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, it costs be on him, Maranatha. Come, O Lord. Come, O Lord. Now, we understand that that word is capable of two interpretations, each of them based on two Aramaic words, Marana or Maran, our Lord, and the verb Atar, to come. So we're dealing with a verb here that says, come, Lord. And of course, it could also be translated, our Lord has come. I mean, there's evidence of both interpretations being favored by different scholars and churchmen in the time we call the patristic period, the time of the early church fathers. But we also understand that's evidence of a growing consensus that the imperative form, come Lord, 
is more likely in Paul's letter. Come, Lord. All we're saying so far is to suggest that the coming of the Lord is something that is important, something that is significant, and of course, you find different terminologies. And again, we find the word epiphania. Epiphania means manifestation. It's from, it's, you get the word epiphany from it. It means appearance. That's exactly what it means, appearance. You see, originally, the term epiphania referred merely to the outward appearance of some object. For instance, it is used of the visible aspects of a town. But then as time went on, it developed a specialized meaning that related to the glorious and majestic appearance of a dignitary. For example, when a king made an appearance before his subjects. And of course, we need to note as well that this term could be used on occasion to refer to the impact upon a person with such a meeting with a dignitary called cause. By the time of the New Testament community, it had developed a yet more specialized meaning, namely the needed and welcome appearance of a God with his people. So it's normally used in context of divine intervention, stressing the power of the God to act on behalf of his people. Epiphania, that's what it means. Although there is a verse in the New Testament where the specific term Epiphania is used of the first coming of Jesus to live among us, which is 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 verse 10, it is predominantly used in respect to the powerful return to us after the period of his ascension. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 8. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, Epiphania, and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have long for his appearing, epiphania, talking about the appearance of Christ again. You see, when you read Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we understand that the appearance of Christ will bring about the end of the man of lawlessness. That is a creature who sets himself against God and who prefers the darkness and at that point will be destroyed. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. In short, this appearance will be met by Christians with unparalleled relief and joy. 
at that point, we'll be able to say the struggle is over. Paul calls it a blessed hope that we wait for. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another term that is used for the second coming of Christ is the word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, revelation. That's what it means. That word is used in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, in various ways. The noun apocalypsis occurs only once in the Septuagint. And it occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30, in a non-theological context. But Ezekiel is the prophet who takes the term and uses it characteristically of the action of God in disclosing sin and the corruption of his people. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 36 to 37. This is what the sovereign Lord says, because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness in your promiscuity with your lovers and because of all your detestable idols and because you give them your children's blood, therefore I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they will see all your nakedness. That is going to be a time of shame when the sin and guilt will be dealt with. That term, apocalypsis, is used of God's revelation to those important and significant servants of God who have leadership roles in Israel. For example, to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7 and 21, and 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 27 for David, for Amos in chapter 3, verse 7, is apocalypsis. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, though, we find that this root is perhaps not as common as one would have expected. It's used with frequency by Paul, Matthew, Peter, Matthew, and Luke. And speaking more positively, the first point to note is that in the New Testament, this route is certainly focused on theological context. We'll find it in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where it says the wrath of God is being revealed. But then when you see in Luke, in particular, the focus is on the person of Jesus. Luke is very, very excited and happy to introduce us at the start of his gospel to Simeon, who is inspired to recognize that Jesus is a light for apocalypses, for revelation to the Gentiles. That's in Luke chapter 2, verse 32. All these passages show us what revelation means. Of course, in 1 Peter chapter 4, 
verse 13, it said, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The term parousia itself is used in several places. I mean, there are too many for us to read on this podcast. And we will find out when one looks at the various references, only one half of the Pauline references are actually eschatological. The eschatological arrival of Jesus. Whereas we find references that refer to the second coming of Christ. Our main concern, as we said at the beginning, what has this got to do with holiness? Very much. All we have tried to do is to establish that the second coming of Christ is of importance to believers. And of course should be, we as believers should be concerned, we should be prepared. What is the role of holiness in all this? Well, let's look at some passages now. First John in chapter three, first John chapter three, we want to see what John asked God to say. In first John chapter three, it says, behold what love the Father has bestowed or shown to us. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Here's where we're going, verse 3. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. All this, all who have this hope in him purify themselves as he is pure. Do we want to see the Lord? Do we want to go with the Lord as Christ is pure? Now, we shall be like him. What we are saying is that for us, to see Christ, to go with him, we will have to be like him. Yes, I understand that scholars differ in understanding when he appears, we shall be like him. Some read this as transformation and some read or glorification of our mortality. Others will point out that such an interpretation will require will become like him rather than be like him, and relate verse 2 to the conclusion of verse 3. In either case, the hope of seeing Christ is the supreme incentive for purifying ourselves. That's the point. The hope of seeing Christ provides an incentive for purifying ourselves. And the standard is pretty clear. It says, just as he is pure. This is talking about 
an empirical holiness, not a positional holiness. I repeat, this is about empirical holiness, not positional holiness. And again, let's quickly say this. It's not talking about self-sanctification. No. Yes, it is true that one could look at progressive holiness because the verb is in the present tense. And we can see in 4 John chapter 1, verse 7, that the blood cleanses from all sin. On each of us rests the responsibility of seeking the cleansing with all our hearts. That almost is an allusion, or in a sense, parallel to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. The believer's act is using what God gives. That's the way Westcott puts it, B.F. Westcott. We cleanse ourselves and purify ourselves, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And it's quite interesting that the verb translated purifies here and the adjective pure are respectively agnizei and hagnos, something we looked at in our past episode on holiness in the pastorals. The family of what is related to but not identical with the Agios family. This is, it is used to describe both ceremonial cleanness as well as, male, as moral or spiritual purity. We find that in John eleven fifty five, We keep ourselves pure. That is pure from defilement, not contaminated. One scholar puts it this way. No man can thus keep himself pure by his own will and effort, but he can continually walk in the light. And this light, the revealed truth of God in Christ, serves as a purifying ray. The light was such a man's innermost being, and it will burn its way into his very conscience and will. So John further dares to assert that we are pure as he is pure. John can make this bold assertion because it is God who does the cleansing. It is because of this purifying that we shall be like him. If we have the hope that Christ is coming, the hope of Christ's coming should motivate all of us to live lives that are pleasing in his sight. Now look at the way John, uh, look at the way Peter puts it. Turning to First Peter, in First Peter, looking at it in First Peter, we want to look at chapter two. First Peter, chapter two. Looking at it in verse twelve, I read actually from verse ten. For those who desire to love life and to seek good days. Let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking disease. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. For the, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's in chapter three, First Peter. Then going to chapter two now, 
Reading verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge as aliens and exiles. The old King James says, as strangers and pilgrims, aliens and exiles. We need to remind ourselves that we're aliens and exiles in the world. In the world, and what should we do? We should abstain from the desires of the flesh. First Thessalonians, in First Thessalonians, chapter five. First Thessalonians, chapter five. Looking at it in verse twenty-three, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about the coming of Christ, what does it do to us? It should motivate us to live lives that are pure and holy. And again, please be reminded, this is not holiness by struggling. This is holiness by trusting. Again, be reminded that when God commands something, he provides the ability to do it. And what God commands, his spirit enables. What God commands, the blood of Christ makes possible. So as we think about the coming of Christ, let's devote ourselves to God. Let's consecrate ourselves to God. Let's yield ourselves to God. We'll do our own part, and God does his own part. Holiness is partnership with God. And this holiness is not positional holiness. It's ethical. It's not just positional holiness, but practical holiness. You and I, should live lives that bring honor, glory, praise to God as we wait for the coming of Christ. In our next episode, we begin to look at holiness in the Johannine epistles. Until then, God bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.